great to have you joining us online today. Obviously, we would have preferred to be in person, but we're grateful that we can still uh, worship God and open up God's Word like this together. And what an amazing passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at today. This is, in my opinion, one of the greatest passages in the Bible. And we're going to be talking about what it means for us to live our life for others. Now, if you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series called The Next 30. We've been talking about where God is leading us into the future, what He is calling us to do and who He is calling us to become. And we've been talking about our purpose and our priorities. Now, our purpose, our mission, why we exist, it's very simply this, to help more people find life in Jesus. To help more people find life in Jesus. Jesus is life. Jesus gives life. Jesus speaks the words of life. And Jesus is the only way to life. And so we want to be all about life in Jesus. Now to help us fill this purpose, we've devoted ourselves to three priorities. Life in Jesus, life together, and life for others. Now, as I've said to you over these last few weeks, these are not new or novel or revolutionary. This is just basic Christianity. This is just the Christian life in a nutshell. And what we've been doing over the last few weeks is digging deeper into each of these priorities. So two weeks ago, we looked at life in Jesus, the most important priority. It's all about our relationship with God. Last week, we looked at life together, all about our relationship to one another, all about the church. And what we saw last week was that when God saves, He gathers. That part of what it means to be a Christian is to belong to God's family and to treat God's family the way that He would want us to. Well, today we're going to be talking about life for others. We're going to be talking all about our mission to the world. Or to put it more correctly, God's mission in the world and our involvement in that mission. Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you think about the word mission. Mission. I'm guessing there's a few different things and probably all of them are connected to the idea of doing something difficult. So maybe it's soldiers going out on an operation. Maybe it's missionaries in a far-flung location. Or maybe it's Tom Cruise starring in Mission Impossible, number 48 or whatever movie they're up to in the franchise. To go on a mission, generally speaking, and the way we understand it is to do something difficult. I mean, this is true even of the way that we use the word in everyday speech. If we have to do something difficult or painstaking or laborious like painting the house or pulling the weeds or putting together flat pack furniture, we'll generally say once we've done it is, man, that was a mission. To do or to go on a mission is to do something difficult. And so when I say that today we're going to be talking about our involvement in God's mission, you might not be jumping up and down with excitement. You might even feel a familiar wave of guilt come over you. But I hope that by the end of our time together today, while you might not be jumping up and down in your living room, I hope that you will be encouraged to engage in God's mission in your life. To live your life for others. Because the truth is, there is no greater cause in the universe than to be involved in helping others come to know 
God. Then helping others come to find life in Jesus. And this is, after all, the heartbeat of God's mission in the world. This is what God is busy doing in the world. He is reconciling people to himself. And this is reflected in the entire storyline of the Bible. I mean, right back in Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham that through his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God has been on a mission to seek and to save, to bring people into restored relationship with himself. And in the Old Testament, the focus of this mission was the nation of Israel. But the Old Testament also has a note. It has promises about a day in the future when all nations would turn to God and worship him. For example, this is what we read in Micah chapter four, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. It's this global vision of many nations coming to know and to worship God. And this promise in Micah 4 is fulfilled in the New Testament. The blessing of God floods out into the nations because Jesus has been sent from heaven to earth on a mission. Remember what he said? He said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And then Jesus sends his followers out to be involved in his mission. You know, Jesus prays to the Father, for example, in John 17. And he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus describes his followers in Matthew 5 as the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And then Jesus' final words, they're known as the Great Commission. Well-known words, and this is what they say, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. A stunning statement. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now these words, Jesus' final words, they're not known as the great suggestion. They're known as the great commission because Jesus commissions, calls, instructs, commands all of us to be engaged in this work. I mean, this is the job of every Christian. This is the calling of every believer. I said last week that to belong to God's uh, people, or to be a Christian, sorry, to be a Christian means to belong to God's people. It means to be devoted to life together. Well, it also means to be sent into the world. It means to be devoted to life for others, to share the good news of Jesus with others, to love others like Jesus, to serve others like Jesus, to give our lives for the good of others. This is what Jesus calls us to. And this is a compelling vision, isn't it? To lay down our lives for the good of others. There's nothing greater than seeing people find the freedom and the hope and the healing and the life that is in Jesus. But if we're being honest, to lay down our lives for others is also very, very difficult. 
it doesn't come very naturally to us. In fact, we more naturally live for ourselves. We more naturally live not lives of selflessness, but lives of self-interest. It's kind of like the story I heard this week about the lady who answered a knock on her door and there was a, a man there with a sad expression on his face. And he said to this lady, he said, I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm collecting money for a, a family in the neighborhood that's doing it tough. The husband is out of work. The kids are hungry. The utilities will soon be cut off. And worse, they're gonna be kicked out of their apartment if they can't pay their rent by this afternoon. To which the lady replied and she said, oh, of course, I'll be happy to help. But, but may I ask, who are you? And the man replied and said, I'm the landlord. See, this is what Martin Luther called the inward curve of the human heart. It's our innate self-centeredness, our self-interest, our self-absorption. In fact, I, I heard something interesting this week. Apparently, if you put 10 chickens in a, a pen together, any 10 chickens, and you put them in the pen, you spread a little bit of chicken feed around, in just a matter of minutes, you will witness this amazing phenomenon. These chickens who were previously strangers, they will form a hierarchy based on dominance. To use everyday language, they will form a pecking order. And so chicken one will begin to peck at chicken number two. And chicken number two will, will kind of take it from number one and, and won't retaliate, but will then start to peck at and intimidate chicken number three. And number three will then turn around and take it out and, and peck at chicken number four. And this will go on all the way down to chicken number 10, who needless to say, lives a pretty miserable existence. He's pecked at, but has no one to peck at. Now I'm sure that you would agree that this phenomenon doesn't just exist with chickens, but it's a human thing as well. In fact, you could argue that it's positively encouraged in our day. I mean, we are regularly encouraged to look out for number one. In other words, to look out for ourselves. It's kind of what Fleetwood Mac and now Isuzu encourage us to do, to go our own way. Even in publishing, there is a whole sector of books which encourages us to look out for ourselves first and foremost. In fact, this week I did a quick search on the Amazon website in the book section. I did a search for self-help and I received over 70,000 hits. I did a search for humility and received only 6,000 hits. This is the air that we breathe. This is the water that we swim in. In fact, there was a book that was written in 2009 called The Narcissism Epidemic. And as the title suggests, the authors make the claim that we, at least in the West, we are living in the midst of a narcissism epidemic that we're totally absorbed with ourselves, that we predominantly look out for ourselves. And this was written over 10 years ago. So whether you agree with the author's claim or not, it's hard to argue with the conclusion that the default position of the human heart is selfishness. It's self-centeredness. I mean, no one teaches a child to say mine. It just comes out of them. And this is why the passage that we heard just a moment ago from Philippians chapter two is so revolutionary. This is why the words that we heard a moment ago, they land so forcefully on us and they sound so foreign to us because they are so amazingly countercultural and they are so wonderfully 
compelling. I mean, let's be honest with one another. We wouldn't have made this up. We wouldn't have naturally come up with Philippians chapter two. Some people like to say that the Bible is a human invention, not uh, God's word to man, but man's words about God. But who could have or would have come up with what we read in Philippians chapter two? The answer is no one other than God. I mean, here's the very first thing that Paul says to us in this passage, verse three. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, what's selfish ambition? Very simply, it's self-interest. It's making sure that you come out on top. It's being manipulative, deceptive, unprincipled to get your own way to elbow others out of the way, to make sure that you end up at the front of the line. Now, I don't know if you've watched the TV show House of Cards, but the main character, Frank Underwood, is an extreme example of selfish ambition. He does whatever it takes to get power and then to keep power. He lies, steals, cheats, manipulates, even kills to keep himself at the front of the line. That's selfish ambition in its most extreme form. Now, what about vain conceit? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Well, again, very simply, it's self-obsession and self-exaltation. It's bending every moment, every conversation, every event around to be about you. It's being concerned with how everything affects you. You know, Theodore Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States, and he apparently wrestled with vain conceit. Apparently, he liked to be the center of attention. It's said of him that he wanted to be the bride at every wedding he attended and the corpse at every funeral. Vain conceit. And Paul says to the Christians in Philippi and to us today, he says, this is not how a Christian should live. Don't push yourself to the front of the line. Don't trample on others to get ahead. Don't make everything about you. Rather, he says, verse three and four, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. A Christian is to value others, to look out for others, to live for others. I heard it put in a very simple acronym this week, joy. Jesus first, others second, you last. That's kind of a a snapshot of what Paul's saying here in this verse. Now the question is, what does this mean practically? What does it mean to value others above myself? to look to the interests of others. Because if I'm honest, that sounds a little intimidating. Well, firstly, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't or can't look out for ourselves. Of course, we have to look out for ourselves and our loved ones. In fact, 1 Timothy 5 in the Bible says that if we don't do this, if we don't look out for our loved ones, take care of our loved ones, we've denied the faith. 
And this verse here in Philippians 2, it actually assumes that we will take care of ourselves and our loved ones. The ESV, the English Standard Version of the Bible, it translates verse 4 a bit more literally. This is what it says. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests. In other words, it assumes you will be looking to your interests, but also, it says, we should look to the interests of others. So this verse is not saying that we have to neglect ourselves, nor is it saying that we have to neglect the truth. I mean, this command here in verse four is not talking about flattery. To value others above ourselves, it does not mean we have to be insincere or untruthful about others. I mean, if Roger Federer was to become a Christian, and I'm not sure if he is or not, but let's just say that he isn't, and if he was to become a Christian, he doesn't have to say that I'm a better tennis player than him. Emma, for example, doesn't have to say that I'm a better singer than her. Both of those things are just obviously untrue. And so to value others above ourselves, to look to the interests of others, it doesn't mean we neglect ourselves. It doesn't mean we neglect the truth. Instead, it means we practice and we pursue honor. It means we learn to put ourselves in the shoes of others. It means we learn to put others and their interests ahead of our own. It means we place ourselves lower in the pecking order. We don't push to get our own way. We're willing to compromise. We're willing to give up our rights, to share, to give, to serve, to make sacrifices and to do it for the good of others. You know, perhaps an obvious example of what this looks like in practice is our creche and our junior kids and our kids' church volunteers. You know, on a normal Sunday when we're here in the building together, while we're here in the service, they will be out there and they will be teaching our kids, taking care of our kids. They will be missing the service so that we can be here present in the service. They're looking to our interests ahead of their own. And that's a small glimpse of what it means to live an others-focused life, to put the interests of others ahead of our own. Now, this doesn't mean that this is easy or simple. It's not. I mean, this is incredibly challenging. A lot like the command that we looked at last week to forgive others, this is one of the most challenging commands in Scripture. And yet, it's also a repeated command in Scripture. I could share with you many different examples, but let me just give you two. Romans 15 verse two, the apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and he says, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And even Paul, when he describes his own ministry and his own mission in the world, he says this in 1 Corinthians nine. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Paul is willing to lay down his life, to lay down his rights, to serve others, to see more people find Jesus. And this is the heartbeat of the Christian life, to give ourselves for others, to lay down our lives for others, to devote ourselves to life for others. Now the question is, and we haven't yet touched on this yet, but the question is, why? Why on earth would 
anyone want to live in this way? Why would you want to put others, value others above yourselves? I mean, isn't that just a recipe for being taken advantage of? Doesn't that mean that you will just end up being a doormat? And this is why I think our world and our society just pushes us to to get ourselves to the front of the line, to come out on top, to get our own way. Because the danger is, well, you'll just get taken advantage of. And as Paul goes on in Philippians 2, he answers these questions and these objections in the most powerful way possible, with some of the most profound truths imaginable. Because he points us to the example of Jesus in verses 6 to 11. Now these verses, they may have been actually an early Christian hymn, a song that they might have sung in worship. It's hard to say exactly, but either way, these verses are some of the most deep and profound and beautiful in all of the Bible. I mean, these six verses give us a glimpse into the mind of Christ. They tell us about the attitude of Christ and they show us the heart of Christ. And what could be more wonderful than that? And so these are very deep and wonderful waters. We can't possibly plumb all of their depths today, but we can make a few important observations. Firstly, Paul tells us in verse six that Jesus was rightfully in the highest place. Jesus was rightfully in the highest place. Paul says in verse six that Jesus is in very nature God. In other words, he really and eternally and truly is God. Jesus is and always has been at the very top of the pecking order at the very front of the line, at the center of everything, because Jesus is none other than God. But what Paul says next is that though Jesus was rightfully in the highest place, Jesus willingly assumed the lowest place. Look at verses six and seven. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Paul says that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, he did not simply become a man, he became a servant. And this is what Jesus said about himself. For example, in Mark 10, he said that he, said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And of course, the service that Jesus ultimately came to offer, it was to do more than just wash our feet and heal our diseases. Jesus ultimately came to die in the place of sinners. He came to go to the lowest place possible. Look at verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus was as elevated and as glorious as you can get. And yet he came and he went as low as you could possibly go. He submitted himself to death, even death, Paul says, on a cross, an instrument of torture and shame. You see, Jesus went from the light of glory to the darkness of death and he did it for you and for me. He became like us so that we might become like him. 
He became a slave so that we might go free. He came to die so that you and I might live forever. Now, what kind of God does this? What kind of God humbles himself for rebels? Comes down as low as this for his enemies. Only the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is like this. In fact, the, the, the brilliant British author, G.K. Chesterton, he once wrote a novel called The Ball and the Cross. It's kind of an exploration between the difference between the secular materialistic worldview and Christianity. Hence the title, The Ball, The World, and The Cross. And in this book, there's a brilliant passage about the difference between Jesus and Satan. And this is how it goes. Then what? asked Turnbull very slowly as he softly picked a flower. What is the difference between Christ and Satan? It is quite simple, replied the Highlander. Christ descended into hell. Satan fell into it. Does it make much odds, asked the free thinker? Does it make much of a difference? It makes all the odds, said the other. One of them wanted to go up and went down. The other wanted to go down and went up. And you see, we, much like our spiritual enemy, we in our pride want to go up. We want to be at the top of the pecking order. We want to be at the front of the line. But to do so in God's world and in opposition to God, it will only lead us eventually to go down. But you see, to humble ourselves, to go down with God to, and in submission to God, it means that eventually it will lead us up, all the way up to God forever. And we know this is true because this is what happened to Jesus. Though Jesus assumed the lowest place on our behalf, God restored him to his rightful place. Look at verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended into heaven. And Jesus is one day coming again, at which every knee will bow before him. Every knee will bow before King Jesus, the King who humbled himself and served those in opposition to him. The King who came to serve rebels. This is the heart of Jesus, the attitude of Jesus, the mindset of Jesus. And Paul says to us in verse five, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. As his followers, we are to follow Jesus on the path of humility. We are to follow him into the low place. We are to live our lives for others. This is the heart of Christian conduct. Jesus gave himself for others, we 
give ourselves for others. I love the way that Ray Ortland puts it, a pastor from the States. He says, love for Jesus is a powerful force. Love for Jesus builds hospitals. Love for Jesus raises children. Love for Jesus studies the Bible. Love for Jesus sends missionaries. Love for Jesus invites neighbors over for dinner. Love for Jesus teaches kids in Sunday school. Love for Jesus forgives the unforgivable. Love for Jesus agitates for justice. Love for Jesus takes in refugees. Love for Jesus composes music. Love for Jesus changes dirty diapers. Love for Jesus is the greatest force in all the world because Jesus himself is in it. Now, I love that because it shows us that the mission of God, it's not just about doing something big and significant. Now, of course, it might be. God might call you to go overseas as a missionary. God might compel you to give away lots of money for the sake of the gospel. God might call you to take a big risk and to make big sacrifices for him. But of course, he might call you. In fact, I'm almost certain that God is calling you, whoever you are, to small but sacrificial acts of love and service as you go about your everyday life as a follower of Jesus. Now, I've shared this story with you before, but it's just so moving to me. Tim Winton is a celebrated Australian author. He's one of my favorite novelists. And now when Tim was five years old, his father was seriously injured in a motorcycle accident. His dad actually ended up incapacitated and housebound. And Tim says that his dad was a pretty big man. And so it was really difficult for his mum to, to bathe him each and every day, to take care of him each and every day. And news of the Winton's predicament got out into the local community and one day there was a knock on their door and there was a man standing there and he said, G'day, my name's Len. I heard your hubby is a bit crook. Is there anything I can do? Now, Len Thomas was from the local church. He was a follower of Jesus and he wanted to help. He wanted to lay down his life for the good of this family. And Winton says, he says, he just showed up and he used to carry my dad from bed and put him in the bath and he used to bathe him, which in the 60s in Perth, in the suburbs, was not the sort of thing you saw every day. And Tim says that this simple act of Jesus-motivated kindness had a profound effect is what Tim says. Listen carefully. He says, this strangely sacrificial act was the doorway into the Christian faith for the whole family. And I believe that God wants to do something similar through us. Strangely sacrificial acts that serve as a doorway to Jesus. Because this is what we want to devote ourselves to as a church, to help more people find life in Jesus. And so what is God calling you to do today? You can't do everything. No one expects you to do everything, but you can do something. How is God calling you to give your life for others? Now, I think as we land this sermon series on our priorities, I think the perfect place for us to, to bring it to a close is with 
our prayer. Now you'll find our prayer in the vision booklet that we've handed out recently. And this prayer expresses the heartbeat of our church. This is what we are asking God to do in and among and through us as a church community. And as we move forward together, this prayer is the perfect way to capture what we're asking God to do for us and through us. And so let's pray this prayer together and let's ask God to do more than all that we could ask, think, or imagine for His glory. Let's pray this prayer together.